Well, good morning. If you have your Bible with you, you could turn to the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. On the chair Bibles in front of you are passages found on page 850. We're continuing in our series through this prophetic book. We're in Malachi chapter 2, and our passage this morning is verses 10 through 17. If, if you and I are interested in living out our belief in Jesus and his gospel, one of the things that we constantly have to reckon with is how the problems with our relationship with God impact our relationships with other people, right? The, the, the vertical, to put it another way, the vertical has impact on the horizontal. So the sin which is a rebellion against God, is also a stressor against others. Sin is fundamentally antisocial. As the prophet Malachi continues his disputation against the people of God, we can see he becomes increasingly personal. He began by judging their half-hearted worship, their cultural captivity, and their impure religion, right? Vertical fractures. But then he becomes increasingly judgmental of the horizontal fractures resulting from those sins against God. So in the last um, sermon in this book, in our last look at this book, we saw how he focused his rebuke on the priests, on the religious leaders in a compromised ministry. And in today's passage, he zooms in even closer to focus his rebuke on compromised social circles and families and marriages. Malachi chapter 2, let's begin reading in verse 10. Don't all of us have one Father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? Judah has acted treacherously, and a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. This is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask, why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is the one seeking? Godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you ask, how have we wearied him? When you say, everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he is delighted with them, or else, where is the God of justice? This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that you would prepare our hearts and minds to receive it, make us sensitive to your Holy Spirit and what he would impart to us from this word that he has breathed out. And Father, we ask above all things that you would help us to see the glory of your Son, Christ Jesus. 
to make him and cherish him as our soul and ultimate treasure. And it's in his name we pray these things, in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. So we, we continue to see the, the negative cultural influence of the prevailing godless culture upon God's people in Malachi's day. They have drifted into a half-hearted religion, into a cultural religiosity that masks their faithlessness. In other words, they have the facade of being faithful, of being religious, of you know, going to church, that whole thing. But the reality, the inward reality, is that their heart is far from God. In today's passage, the behavior and cultural symptoms of this faithlessness are revealed in a few ways. So first, we have the issue of God's people turning on each other, kindling divisions with other believers. And then we see the issue of so many of them marrying pagan women. We see the drifting of God's people into pagan syncretism and a marital unfaithfulness to their spouses, influenced by the outside culture. In his commentary on Malachi, Robbie Gallaty points out about the fall of the Roman Empire that enemies from outside Rome's gates did not cause it to crumble. It was entirely forces from within its walls. The enemy was the decay of religion and the degradation of the home, a result of rampant divorce. And this is the interesting thing, or one of the interesting things, about all of the prophetic books, including Malachi. The word of judgment, the word of warning, the word of rebuke from God isn't usually aimed squarely at outsiders. The Lord does have prophetic words of warning to his enemies, but the aim is squarely on insiders, those who claim to be his people, which is an important word for us today as well. The Bible says in 1 Peter 4.17, judgment begins at the house of God. So before we get all worked up about all the sin out there, we should be primarily worked up about and energized to repent of the sin in here. And through Malachi's word to his people, God is calling his people for all time into faithful relationships. He's calling you and me to do relationships in ways that reflect the goodness and grace of God's own covenant with us. Well, what is Malachi telling us in this passage about relationships shaped by the covenantal faithfulness of God? At least three things, I think, and the first one is this. Faithful relationships revere God's holiness. Faithful relationships revere God's holiness. So every person ought to take stock of their entire relational lives by asking themselves explicitly, just in your own mind, what do I want out of my relationships? What's the purpose of my relationships? Whether it's with a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend or with your parents or with your children or with your coworkers or just your friends and neighbors, ask yourself, what does the way I do relationships say about God? In, in this passage, Malachi rebukes divisiveness between the tribes of Israel. They're protecting their own unique interests and it puts them at odds with each other. Verse 10, don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? You know, as I was reading this passage over the last couple of weeks, I began to wonder if there was any more relevant text for modern evangelicalism than this passage. 
Because don't we have this issue in the evangelical church today? We are constantly waging war against each other based on secondary and tertiary issues. We mock one another. We suspect one another. Even within local churches, engaging in gossip and distrust and not thinking the best of each other. And God is saying through Malachi, isn't what unites us greater than what differentiates us? Isn't he who is our father greater than what tempts to divide us? And he points to God himself as the unifying source that should heal our divisions. If we have the same God who is holy, shouldn't we pursue holy faithfulness in our relationships with each other? But this division doesn't just cause us to suspect or even despise each other. It often sends us into unholy partnerships with those who do not love God as Father. Take a look at verses 11 and 12. Judah has acted treacherously and a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves. How has he done this? He has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. What is the indictment here? It's, it's not about intermarriage between cultures, per se, or, or races. Walter Kaiser says, the issue is not cross-cultural marriages of different races. Instead, it's a mixing of religious and spiritual commitments that's being objected to here. The expression, daughter of a foreign god, he says, refers to an idolatrous, one who is dependent on a false deity. The indictment is professing worshipers of God, intermarrying with non-worshippers of God, believers entering covenantal partnerships with unbelievers. I think this has a broad application for Christians today. But it certainly has application for the prospect of Christians marrying non-Christians. But even for Christian singles, thinking about dating non-Christian singles. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, Do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Now, in context, that passage isn't directly about romantic relationships, but it's certainly about entering compromising partnerships with those who do not worship God and who therefore pose a temptation to pollute our own worship of God. So not pursuing romantic relationships with unbelievers is certainly a valid application. But the general thrust is this. The Christian's faithfulness is to be first to God. And we're not to get covenantally entangled, yoked with those whose faithfulness is not first to God. If two parties don't share the same God, they don't share ultimately the same values, the same spiritual commitments. And when you're unequally yoked, What's normative is that drift often occurs toward the values of unbelief, not the other way around. 
That's actually the whole point of the book of Malachi, that the people have given in to the cultural and spiritual pressures of compromise around them. Their religion has become a sham. If you're a believer dating an unbeliever, you will find yourself constantly put under the pressure of unbelieving values and priorities. The burden of holiness can become too great to bear when you don't have someone who, with the Spirit's grace, is helping you to bear it. Because they desire the same thing. They desire holiness as well. And one of the things that holiness means is to be set apart. If you're God's child, you're set apart from the world. You're set apart to put him first. To set him apart from all other priorities and commitments. To honor God above all others. And so this means in our relationships, we're called to first honor him. To revere his holiness. And getting into relationships with those who do not share this honor, who do not share this reverence, is your own failure to give that honor and reverence to him. In a previous church of mine, there was a uh, single lady who began attending. She was a single mother. She had two uh, teenage children, a son and a daughter. And they began to, um, in, in the mother's words, try to reconnect with the faith of her youth. And the daughter in particular, teenage daughter, um, began to get very serious about her faith. And she was dating a, a young man who was not a believer. He, he came and visited a few times um, to church, not regularly. I never got to meet him. I just would see him as he would come. And um, eventually, uh, I got a phone call um, from um, this young man, which I was a little surprised by, but he shared with me that, um, that the young lady had broken up with him, and he wanted to know if he could come meet with me. And I was a little kind of weirded out by that. I thought, am I supposed to console you? I mean, I don't know what I was doing, but I, was, I just said, sure, yeah, come on out. And so... Um, I'd never met him before, seen him, but I'd, I'd not met him. And um, in any event, he turned up at my office uh, w- one day, and uh, he had a Bible under his arm. And I thought, oh, well, that's—I mean, that's a good sign. Maybe you know he wants to know about more about the Bible or how to become a Christian or something like that. And our conversation kind of started out that way. It was kind of going in that direction. He was asking about coming to church, and he was asking about where he should start reading the Bible, and if I had any book recommendations to help him read the Bible, and all these sorts of things. Um, but when we were kind of like rounding third at the end of this opening conversation, he basically ended up by asking if I could put a word in for him with the young lady. <laughs> He's like, could you tell her I'm trying really hard to be a good person? <laughs> and I thought, you know, it's good you're trying to be a good person. It's good you're trying to, um, you, know, uh, you know, take Christianity seriously. But I just flat out asked him, I said, are you just doing all this stuff to get her back? And he said, well, Yeah. <laughs> And I was thinking, first of all, this is a church, not a dating app, you know? Like, I don't have that power to kind of move things around that way, to tell people who they should date. But I just said to him, you know, if, if you're serious about Christianity, you have to be serious about it because you love God and because you want to follow Jesus. It can't be about some desired result, a girl or otherwise, and, of course, he seemed very disappointed in that. And after he left, he, he never returned a phone call. He never returned an email. He never came back to church. In some ways, I, I, I thought he was kind of like um, the rich young ruler, you know. He's willing to give up so much in service of his idol, except for the idol itself. 
If you're a Christian dating a non-Christian, you may be hoping and praying that they come to faith in Jesus. And, and you should do that. You should pray that every lost person you know gets found. But you can do that without being in a romantic relationship with them. If you're a Christian dating a non-Christian, you should break off that relationship. You don't have to be rude to that person. You don't have to be judgmental over them. Just simply explain why. Say, my commitment to God comes first. And, and I want to put everything I have into that. And so any relationship I want to be in has to be a relationship that helps me pursue God above all things. Now, if you're a Christian married to a non-Christian, what do you do? You've just heard we're not to be unequally yoked. We're not to be married to someone who's a uh, believer in a foreign God, whether it's an explicit idol or a different religion or no religion at all. What do you do? Do you break off that marriage? Well, the Bible says no, actually. The, the Apostle Paul instructs us in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, a wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband's not to divorce his wife. If any brother has an unbelieving wife and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. And then he adds, wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Now, we all know the cliche, right? Two wrongs don't make a right. But assuming that there are no legitimate biblical grounds for divorce, and, and I do think there are some, at least one, and assuming the unbelieving spouse is content to stay married, divorce is not the answer for a believer in an unequal yoking in marriage. In fact, it's to the marriage relationship that Malachi turns next as he helps us see, secondly, that faithful relationships reflect God's design. Faithful relationships reflect God's design. They revere God's holiness and they reflect God's design. Marriage, like all relationships, is ultimately for the glory of God. So we must follow his design for these things. Look beginning in verse 13 as Malachi rebukes husbands and fathers who are acting unjustly in ungodly ways contrary to God's design. This is another thing you do. You're recovering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask, why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is the one seeking? Godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. The first thing you may notice I think, is an implicit affirmation of complementarianism, of male headship in the home. Just as we have an affirmation previously, verses 1 through 9, of, I think, male headship in the church. So just as men are given the mandate to lead churches and family homes, they receive the responsibility, not just to lead, but to lead in repentance. 
Just as Genesis chapter 3, it might show us Eve's deception by the serpent, but the sin that you and I inherit is not Eve's, it's Adam's. Why? Because of the responsibility of male headship. So in verses 1 through 9, as Pastor Brandon helped us see, the rebuke goes first to priests, to the pastors, essentially. And here the charge goes to husbands and fathers. This is not because wives or children are exempt from needing to repent of their sin or that wives or children are not responsible for their sin. Any more than verses 1 through 9 means that non-priests or non-leaders in the church are not responsible for their sin. Nor does it mean that men are better than women or more important than women. But God begins his rebuke with those charged with headship, with responsibility, with the leaders. If Jesus showed up this week to rebuke Liberty Baptist Church, I'm convinced he wouldn't start on Sunday morning. He would come Thursday evening to the elders meeting. The rebuke would begin with the pastors. And just as the first part of this chapter indicates, the pastors would be first in line to receive the message. A church over time will become whatever its pastors are. And a family over time will become whatever its husbands and fathers are. Um, There's a lot of actually social data, totally irreligious social data, that proves the impact, the importance of fathers in the home. And so here the heads of households are the first in line to receive the message. And the background for this message is God's design for marriage. Namely, that it's intended for a man and a woman. It's intended for permanence, this side of heaven. And it's intended to carry out the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. But instead, these men, they're abandoning their wives. They're failing to love their wives. They're cheating on their wives. They're treating their wives unjustly. Verse 14 says this is an act of treachery, not just against their spouse, but against the covenant of marriage itself. In verse 16, it's compared to committing injustice against the garment. Some translations say violence. The idea is that by marital unfaithfulness, one is tearing the marriage covenant, tearing the marriage garment tearing at the one flesh that husband and wife become in the covenant of marriage. The rebuke of verses 13 and 14 is of the charade that some men make of their profession of faith when they act religiously outwardly while acting unfaithful maritally. If you're not faithful to your spouse, your outward commitment to God is fake. Verses 13 and 14, I think, is very similar to what we see in 1 Peter 3.17. I I immediately thought of this verse when I read this rebuke. Peter says, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs in the grace of life. And then he says, So your prayers won't be hindered. Husbands, if you are entrapped by lusts of the mind, engaging in physical adultery or emotional adultery, engaging in pornography, or just plain cold-heartedness or laziness or failing to lead spiritually in a way that honors your wife, all of your outward religiosity is a fraud. If you're not honoring your wife at home, you can come to church all you want. You can pray and sing. You can look the good religious part. But God is saying to you, I do not respect your offering." Why? Because by acting unjustly towards your wife in the covenant, 
No matter how big a show you make of your spirituality, you're actually making God and his covenant look small and inconsequential. But there's another indictment within this indictment here too. If you thought that was really sensitive, it actually gets even more touchy. While the original creation mandate in Genesis for marriage of man to woman included the call to be fruitful and multiply, those receiving Malachi's rebuke are failing to work toward filling the earth with, verse 15, what does he desire? Godly offspring. As an echo of be fruitful and multiply, as a foreshadow of everything we see in the New Testament about childbearing and and housekeeping, this phrase reminds us that the normative design for Christian homes is one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage pursuing the good work of building a family. Now, we can acknowledge, and we should acknowledge, that many Christians are called to singleness, either by choice or by providential circumstances. Our brother, Caden Clawson, will be preaching on singleness next month. I- I'm excited to hear that message. I think it will be a great encouragement to our single church members, a reminder to single Christians that if you have Christ, you have everything you need. Paul even says that single people have a missional advantage over married people. And further, we can and should acknowledge that not all married persons are able to conceive or, or, or beyond conception to further have children. And and to not avail yourself of something that's out of your control is not a sin. Okay? But to the extent that married couples are able, using the wisdom that God has given them, we're called to be faithful to each other and build a family. God desires worship of him, and the call to marital faithfulness is maximizing worship of him, which obviously means husbands and wives helping each other worship God, but also means making more potential worshipers. Now, please, don't hear what I'm not saying. I knew this section of the sermon is probably going to be the most sensitive, dare I say controversial, I don't know. So don't hear what I'm not saying. There's no magic number of children that equates to a mathematical faithfulness to God. Your conscience in this matter is captive only to God, not to anybody else, not even a guy in a pulpit, okay? And we, again, we know that some couples are providentially hindered from having children, either for medical reasons or, or just because they're beyond the age of, of childbearing or maybe some other reason that's just out of their control. Even for those who are able, there is certainly a wisdom and a discernment in our obedience to this call, given different life circumstances. But barring legitimate hindrances, a decision to just not have children is ultimately a commitment to personal desires over God's design. What is God's desire revealed here? That Christian men and women who marry each other would be faithful to each other, come what may, and build families in honor of God's covenant to be faithful to him and honoring his design for our relationships over our own preferences. Even if one is married to an unbeliever, the Lord wills that we stay married so long as it depends on us. Why? Because God has commissioned the institution of marriage to reflect his own permanent commitment to his people. It's not wise to marry an unbeliever, but if you find yourself married to an unbeliever, there's no cause to divorce simply in that fact. 
You, in fact, reflect the design of God and faithfulness in grace when you stay committed. Now, none of this is to say that any of this is easy. Whether in church or in marriage, trying to revere God's holiness and reflect his design for our relationships, it takes spiritual strength. It takes a lot of grace. It's always easier to do the ungodly thing. Which is why, thirdly and finally, faithful relationships rely on God's goodness. Faithful relationships rely on God's goodness. All of this stuff can be very hard. Relationships are hard. Whether we're in one that we know just doesn't honor God and we need to change something, or we're in a relationship that's just a struggle or a disappointment. Maybe your marriage just isn't the dream you thought it should be or would be. Maybe you desire to build a family, but you've just not been able to, despite your best efforts. We have to be careful, no matter our relational circumstances, that we do not doubt God's goodness. This is what is happening here, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you ask, how have we wearied him? Oh, he's tired? I'm tired. How have I made him tired? When you say, everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he is delighted with them, or else where is the God of justice? What is happening here is that the children of Israel, after their return from exile, they've been able to recapture some of their religious practices under Persian rule, but they haven't really been able to capture the spirit of those practices. They're still sort of looking for the, the restoration of the kingdom, for, for God to restore Israel. They're still under occupation. And the longer this goes on, the more they're tempted to think that God just doesn't care about their situation at all. That God, in fact, doesn't care about them at all. That actually he's somehow blind to evil, even treating evil people well because he can't see properly. Minion Jacob says that this resentment toward God actually assumes that God's people see better than God does. That they have a better sense of justice than God does. That they can see good and evil better than God can see it. If part of the original sin was your eyes will be open and you'll be able to see like God is, this is even a, a, a perversion of that, a further level to that. Not only will you see like God is, but you'll see better than God can. If we scale this down to our own experience and our own relationships, to our own world, we can see this dynamic when we look out at a world where evil just seems to flourish and we doubt God's goodness, we doubt his justice. The wicked seem to prosper, the good seem to suffer. Does God even care? And when you start down that road, that doubt doesn't stay in the intellect. When you start down the road of, of, of doubt, you'll begin actually to live as if God isn't good, as if God can't be trusted. I mean, if it doesn't matter, I guess it just doesn't matter. Just do whatever I want. And specifically in our relational problems, the unfaithfulness we experience in our relationships might tempt us to distrust God, to doubt his goodness. My spouse isn't loving me like they should, so why should I care what God says about being faithful? They're not keeping up their end of the bargain. Why should I keep up my end? I'm the only one trying. 
We may not say that, but we embrace that way of thinking anyway. She's not loving me. Why am I knocking myself out for her? She doesn't deserve all this effort that I'm putting into our marriage. He's not leading like he should. Why should I care for him? And brothers and sisters, this is functional atheism. We return unfaithfulness for unfaithfulness because we don't trust that God's way is better than our way. But truly, church, we can remain faithful, not because other people are good, but because God is. Because God is good. And ultimately, relationships are not about us. They're about God. Gary Thomas says this about marriage, for instance. He says, it's not designed first to make us happy, but to make us holy. And similarly, we, we hope for all the good and romance and fun and joy of human relationships. Those are good things. We should enjoy those things. But in the end, we commit to faithful relationships because we desire to magnify the grace of God. Because even if our flesh and the world are telling us it doesn't make sense to love unlovable people or to return unfaithfulness with faithfulness, we trust that God is good. And we trust that God's goodness will help us pursue the good in our relationships too. His grace will help us give grace. And what does this mean practically? It means loving people who don't deserve it, certainly. It means staying committed to our marriages to our parents, to our families, to our churches, even when we deem them unworthy of that commitment. I mean, if somebody deserved it, it wouldn't be grace that we're giving them anyway. What does this mean in terms of the gospel? It means that the goodness of God's grace can guide and even empower, give us the strength for these efforts in building faithful relationships. God has made us one and given us a portion of his spirit. Because God is good, we know that these prophetic rebukes are not just God's judging his people, but his giving them a way out of cultural captivity, the way out of their compromise. He's not simply indicting them and, and us on our failure to be relationally faithful. He's calling us back. Next week, as we look at the next chapter, we'll see him explicitly say, return, return to me. That's what he's doing even in this rebuke. He's calling us back to his covenantal glory as a way of building ourselves back up into the people he's called us to be, the people who reflect his covenantal faithfulness. Verse 10, don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another? profaning the covenant. So all of us, men and women, married, single, should follow the admonition in the latter part of verse 15. Watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously. This is part of the blueprint for being a people whose relationships make God look glorious. Because the glory of faithful relationships isn't just beautiful, healthy, reliable marriages and families and friendships and churches and so on. The glory of faithful relationships is God himself. The church is supposed to be the place where we see the glory of faithful relationships on full display. But because of our sin, it so often isn't. 
The family, the home, is meant to be a place where we see the glory of relationships on full display, but because of our sin, it so often isn't. And yet, God is so committed to his own glory that he is willing to remain faithful to profaners of the covenant like you and me. He remains faithful to this covenantal love himself. The good news of Jesus Christ, the the work of Christ on the cross to forgive sins and out of the grave to empower eternal life for any sinner who would trust in him, it is his demonstration of faithfulness to his bride. It is his demonstration of faithfulness to sinners who put their faith in him. It's the demonstration of his desire for godly offspring of God. He goes to the cross and he rises again from the dead in order that new birth might spread, that there might be godly offspring of God all over the face of the earth. And the expansion of the church made up of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. God's goodness to us in the gospel of Jesus shows us his grace in faithful relationships. So for his holiness, he gives us his faithfulness. He doesn't delight in evil. He has, in fact, conquered evil at the cross. And he's conquered even death in his resurrection. In his faithfulness, he will not divorce us. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. No one can snatch you out of my hand. He so unites you to himself that you are inextricable from him. Eternally, nothing can separate you from the love of God. From his own glory, for his own glory, he sustains us in the goodness of his grace forever. Turn to him. For while we are faithless, he is faithful. While we are treacherous, he is trustworthy. While we are sinners, he is a savior, the savior. The glory of faithful relationships is Christ. And relying on his goodness empowered by his good news, we can love and serve him. And we can love and serve others, believe it or not, in ways that make Christ look like the glorious God that he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help in believing these things. We certainly need your help in doing these things. We ask that in all things, you would make our hearts exult in Christ alone to treasure him above all things. May your spirit be granting new birth where it is needed in this room. May your spirit be strengthening by his very power, by the very word of his gospel, every frail, weakened, vulnerable saint in this place, that we might leave this place more confident in your goodness and grace. And it's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.